0: You know, from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, God uses this image of a shepherd. It's one of the world metaphors. That's what my seminary professor used to call them, world metaphors. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 48, verse 15, as Jacob, who is also called Israel, I know, super confusing, um, he's on his deathbed, and he's summarizing his life, and he says, God has been my shepherd to this very day. And then in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we saw this, David read it during worship, for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. And of course, most famously in Psalm 23, Jason read that as our call to worship. He read that famous Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want reflecting on this idea that God is our shepherd. You know, it's interesting when you read the Bible, I think the Bible, sometimes as Americans, we have this mindset that we read the Bible like it is a history textbook. And what I mean by that is we like divorce all literary from it. Does that make sense? But we we forget that the Bible is is literature. It's true literature. It's inspired literature. It's God-breathed literature, but it is literature. And in literature, when you don't know how to explain something easily, what you tend to do is use simile, metaphor, uh, figures of speech, imagery, motifs, things like that. And so for example, someone says to you, "Well, what's life? Like, what is life?" And what does Far scump say? "Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, right People say, "Well, what's it like having a baby?" Well, it's kind of like having a puppy, but worse, you know) <laughs> These kinds of things. Matter of fact, you know, when you look at the Bible, there's never just this really clear, succinct definition of lots of concepts. Have you ever noticed that? When you're like, God, just give us like a two sentence definition of what is the church. And instead, what does God do? He says, uh, Well, the, the church is a bride, the church is a vine, the church is a temple, the church is a household of God, the church is a body. He uses metaphors because the metaphor, in those metaphors, we understand things that are complex in a way that our our puny little human brains, our squishy little brains can understand. Understanding God is difficult, and that's why the Bible uses these metaphors. So why does the Bible use the image of a shepherd? Why does the Bible use the image of a shepherd as one of the main images? Well, shepherding was and still is super common in the Middle East as an occupation. Um, That's because the geography and the terrain of that area is much more conducive to raising sheep and to raising goats than another animal. You know, it's like if you can't find water, it doesn't really help to walk around with like a, a herd of dairy cows. You know what I mean? And so because of the terrain is difficult and the water is in limited areas and you have to be able to move, you can move sheep from place to place with relative ease a lot easier than you can move like a, a herd of chickens, okay? <laughs> I don't even know. What is a herd of chickens called? What is it? A flock. Good. You guys are so smart. I didn't know if it was like a gaggle or one of those weird things. So sheep can move fairly easily. Now, in the biblical world, everybody would have been familiar with shepherding. Matter of fact, lots of key Bible characters were shepherds. And so the Bible uses shepherds as a metaphor, but it also uses sheep, right? And, and we are the sheep. If God is the shepherd, then we are sheep. And, and be, even the fact that the Bible refers to us as sheep, we can learn a lot about that because sheep are social. They tend to follow the crowd. They tend to kind of stick together. They're not a bunch of Rambo sheep. Sheep are vulnerable. That means that they need constant oversight and protection. I don't know if it's true, but I think I read it. It's got to be true, right? I read it on the internet. And like, if you don't, if you don't shear a sheep and the wool just keeps growing, and they just, they just become immobile, and then they get all moldy and turn green. It's a true story, guys. Wikipedia told me that. Sheep are prone to wander without a shepherd. They become easily lost. And all these things, they kind of accurately describe us too, except for the wool part. <laughs> Listen, so common was the profession of shepherding in the biblical world that leaders and rulers are called shepherds even outside of the Bible. Um, that, in, If you look at the ancient Near Eastern history books, they refer to kings as shepherds. And it makes sense because shepherds and kings kind of have the the three same primary functions. And the three primary functions of a shepherd are to feed the sheep, to lead the sheep, and to protect the sheep. I say protect because I couldn't think of a word that rhymed with lead that meant protect, okay? So feed, lead, and protect the sheep. matter of fact, King Hammurabi of Babylon called himself a shepherd. Homer regularly referred to Greek leaders as shepherds of their people. It's a constant motif in the ancient Near East and the corresponding historical books. And so this makes sense when we look at verses like Jeremiah, chapter 49, verse 19, when God rhetorically asks, Who is a shepherd who can stand against me? In other words, if God is king, what king can go toe-to-toe with God? To be a shepherd was a symbol of leadership. Matter of fact, if you think about the, the Egyptian little scepter, you know, you see those those pictures of the pharaoh with the hat and the beard and the, he's holding that little scepter. What does it look like? It's a shepherd's crook. It's just got thrown in the dryer on high heat, but it's still a shepherd's crook, okay? And so even that, that shepherd's crook became an ancient Near Eastern symbol of power and of authority. Of course, we have King David. You know, David and Goliath. King David was a shepherd and a king, and so he kind of marries these two roles in perfect meekness Um, With this responsibility of a leader, he embodies that, so to say, um, that idea of feeding and leading the sheep, protecting the sheep, and also being a king. But when he wavered, when, when David would waver in his faith, when he would waver in his focus, that's when he wound up slipping into problems. Matter of fact, the story of David and Bathsheba, which maybe some of you guys don't know. By the way, there's no good guys in the Bible besides Jesus. And so you don't get shocked when you read somebody's story and they're not very nice, right? And so David, he was abdicating his authorities and responsibility. And the story of David and Bathsheba, what happens is he has an affair with his best friend's wife. And then to cover it up, he has his best friend killed. But that whole story begins with, it was the time of the year when kings went to war and David was at home in his palace. In other words, David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and so then the whole story goes awry. And so we see this picture of shepherds are leaders, leaders are shepherds, kings are called shepherds, and God wants them to be good shepherds, not bad shepherds. But the Israelites, the priests and the kings, are depicted as bad shepherds, in the Old Testament. Look at the book of Ezekiel, if you're writing these things down. Ezekiel chapter 34. This is what we read. The prophet Ezekiel, who's kind of warning the nation. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. And he said, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He's talking about the leaders, not the real shepherds. He says, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought and with force and harshness you have ruled them so the shepherds they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing if you looked at the you know the opposite of all those things you would see what a leader is supposed to do a leader is supposed to strengthen the people is supposed to bound the people up is supposed to bring them back when they wander is supposed to go after the ones who run away That's what they're supposed to be doing as these priests, these leaders in Israel. And then verse 5, this is what it says. So, in other words, because you didn't do those things, leaders, they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And because they were scattered, they became food for all of the wild beasts, for lions, tigers, bears. Thank you. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered, three times says that, over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. So, Ezekiel here, the prophet, he sketches out in vivid terms what it looked like when a shepherd, when a leader, failed to uphold their responsibilities. And so, what were they not doing? Well, they were not feeding the flock. As a matter of fact, instead of feeding the flock, they were feeding themselves with the flock, okay? And so in other words, they were destroying those who were healthy. That's why he said they were, you're slaughtering the fat sheep. So they're destroying those who are healthy, and then those who are unhealthy, you're taking advantage of them. This is what the leaders in Israel were doing. If you went in and you were healthy, you weren't going to be healthy too long. And if you were unhealthy, nobody was strengthening you. Instead, they were taking advantage of you so they could, they could gain, but you would lose. So they weren't feeding the flock. They weren't leading the flock. That meant they weren't strengthening the weak. They weren't healing the injured. They weren't pursuing that which was good for them. They weren't chasing after the strays and bringing them into green pasture, into the sheepfold. They weren't caring for them, and they weren't protecting them. See, because they weren't leading them, they weren't with them. That's how you lead sheep. In the ancient Near East, by the way, you don't lead from behind. We picture kind of like the Irish style of shepherding, you know, whereas like you have the sheep and then the guy's behind and the dogs are chasing them. But in, if you see how they shepherd in the Middle East, the shepherd is in front and the sheep hear his voice, they follow him. He wasn't leading. And because he wasn't leading, the sheep wander. So he's not protecting them. And then they're being killed by wild animals. Because they weren't being led, they didn't have protection. Because they didn't have protection, they wandered. Because there was no overseer to pursue them, They became food for the wild beasts. And the result of this is that they are scattered, scattered sheep, none to search or seek for them, desperate for a shepherd who would actually be good. And so the Bible continues in Ezekiel chapter 34, in verse 11, anticipating a good shepherd. It says, for thus says the Lord God, this is now God speaking again, he says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. You know, God says those kinds of things all the time. One of my favorite passages in Isaiah, God says that he says, I looked who was going to fight this battle and I found no one. So I myself went out and I trounced my enemies, and that's why I'm covered with blood up to my shoulders. That's what the passage, the Rambo passage. That's what it's called. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verse 16, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So look what will happen when the good shepherd, God says, I'm going to come as a good shepherd. Look what will happen with the good shepherd. They will be fed. They will be led. They will be protected. And who's going to do this? God says, I will do this. I myself will do this as the divine shepherd. I will come and I will pursue and I will bind up and I will restore. This is God speaking in the first person, ultimately looking forward to when God would take on the likeness of sinful flesh in the God-man, the Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus. And Jesus knows this, right? In John 10, when he begins his, his teaching on the good shepherd, he assigns these things to himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In John 10, and we're not going to explain it now, because it would be a whole sermon, but Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, and this is contrasted with the hired hands, the bad shepherds, who flee as soon as danger comes. You see, because the way it worked in this time is that the shepherd would build like a ewe out of thorns and and sticks, and he put thorns on top because he's trying to prevent the Hamburglar from climbing over the top. And then what he would do is the sheep would go inside and he would lay down and the shepherd would be the door so that the sheep would have to like jump. They couldn't go over the thorns and they would couldn't go through the shepherd. And so they would have to go over the shepherd and he would theoretically wake up. And that's why Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold, right? So Jesus says he lays down his life. He lays down so the sheep can't get out and robbers can't get in. He's a good Shepherd, whereas the hired hand, when he sees the bad guys coming, he doesn't stay there and play dead, he goes and he runs. He doesn't care about the sheep. Jesus explains in John 10 that the sheep know his voice and they follow him, and that he knows each of his sheep by name. Compare that to the way the bad shepherds were pictured in Ezekiel chapter 34 when they just didn't even care. The only time they even visited the sheep was when they needed to cook one for a meal. Jesus says that he came so that they could have life, the sheep. And not just have life, but so they could have it abundantly. In John 10, we see Jesus' deep care, his deep concern for the sheep. His willingness to sacrifice himself for their well-being. You know, Jesus taught on these things continually. He said, what shepherd doesn't leave the 99 to go and pursue the one? How many times did Jesus say the people were like sheep without a shepherd, scattered across every mountain? So he sat down and taught them, feeding them from the word of God, because no shepherd was taking care of them. You see, Jesus didn't just teach on this motif of being a good shepherd. Jesus actually lived it out. He lived it out. He died for it as the good shepherd. And as I was thinking this morning, this is the story that came to my mind. It's in Luke chapter 8, if you want to follow along. It's also in Mark 5, but I'm mostly going from Luke chapter 8. I was thinking to myself, the good shepherd, how do you explain the good shepherd? You could unpack it, you could do a systematic explanation of it, or you could just look at the way the good shepherd actually lived. In Luke 8, beginning in verse 26, It says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So Jesus was ministering with his disciples. And he says, if you read other, the context or the parallel accounts, he says, hey, let's let's go over the sea. So they all get on the boat and they go over the sea. Now, this region is in Gentile territory. It's on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, across from Galilee. It was also a Gentile area, which meant it was non-Jews. It was a pretty large area. The Decapolis, that means the ten cities, was there, all part of the same governmental structure. Um, that's an area from the coast to that area is 34 miles. This is what we read in Luke 8, 27. When Jesus stepped out on land, there he met a man from the city, the 34 miles away, who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. It's like a graveyard. And I'm going to read the parallel in Mark chapter 5 as well, verses 3 to 5. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been, often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So I love how it says that Jesus met a guy. Like, you know, it's like, oh, hello, good sir. Why, pleased to meet you. Where are your pants? Right? (laughs) He didn't just meet a guy. Jesus gets off the boat and he meets this demon-possessed man coming out of a tomb Shackles hanging from his arms because they're snapped from the last time he was there. Hanging down. He's covered in cuts and scars and dried blood and scabs. And he's naked. He hasn't worn clothes for some time. This is a scattered sheep. This is a sheep who has no shepherd. This is a sheep who has wandered... Because no one was looking out for him, and no one was overseeing him, and no one was feeding him truth, and no one was binding him up, and no one was pursuing him until now. Verse 28, back in Luke chapter 8, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?' I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded, or in the Greek, he'd been commanding, he'd been commanding the unclean spirit, the demon, to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, and he'd be driven by the demon into the desert. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He knows his sheep by name. There's a sheep in there somewhere, but the sheep doesn't respond. Instead, the demon responds, and he said, legion. It says in the, in the gospel of Mark, legion, for we are many. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Here comes this man screaming at the top of his lungs, do not torment me. He says in the original language, what to me and to you? In other words, what business is this? What do you want from me? Leave me alone. Don't torment me. In other words, the demons are saying, it is not yet the final judgment. That's what the demons are saying. The name legion means thousands. It's a word taken from Latin term for a large group of soldiers. It also suggests not that this is just a lot of demons, but that this really is like a military battle going on for this lost sheep. And I have to think, what was Jesus feeling right now as he's looking at this man? A man who was knit together by the hands of God in his mother's womb. A man where he knows everything he ever said, did, thought, every wound every wayward motion. He knows everything that's ever happened to this man. He crossed the sea for this man. Verse 32, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, meaning the demons, not the pigs, begged him to let them enter these, and so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man And they entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. About 2,000 pigs. Uh, There's like 1,200-ish seats in here. Still not enough seats for 2,000 pigs. Okay? it's a lot of pigs. Have you ever wrestled a pig? When we were in the Czech Republic, this is like a couple years ago, I remember 20 years ago, they had a pig that they had to kill, and I tried to convince them to let us wrestle it. They wouldn't let us. They were like, You're a stupid American. <laughs> you can't wrestle a pig. 2,000 pigs. 2,000 pigs. Demons are destructive. They were destroying this sheep. Now they're going to destroy these pigs. But think about it. The herdsmen of those 2,000 pigs, they're there. They're good eyewitnesses to what's going to, about to happen to this man, the transformation that's about to take place. The Gentile herdsman with a herd of pigs. And then in literary contrast to the good shepherd with a small band of sheep crossing the sea to save this one town Lunatic. See, this man, this crazy man, was important to Jesus. That's why he traveled. This man, this crazy man, was important to Jesus. He was more important to Jesus than this town's local economy because you just had 2,000 pigs get killed. The good shepherd goes and pursues his sheep. This is a scattered sheep. A man God had knit together in his mother's womb, like I said. A man who who Jesus knew everything about him. His trauma, his pain, the number of hairs on his head, the days written for him in the book of life. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. They're kind of like by accident evangelists. And then the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So they run, they get everyone. The pigs are their responsibility. they got to blame somebody. And this man, they come back, he's been healed. He's been saved spiritually, physically, emotionally. He went from running into the rocks and the desert to sitting in a place of submission at the rabbi's feet. He went from being naked and bloody to clothed. He went from being crazy to being in his right mind. He went from being possessed by many, many demons to now being a sheep at peace with the shepherd. Verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. see, the people see the transformation. The pigs are dead, floating in in the lake. And the people are afraid. And they beg Jesus to depart. Because what Jesus did was scarily miraculous. And their local economy was destroyed. The communal herd, gone. The man begs Jesus to allow him to come with him. He looks at this crowd of angry pig farmers. And Jesus says, Stay. And he sends this man out like a shepherd to look for more scattered sheep. Jesus, the shepherd, feeds, he leads, he protects, and he pursues. He's a good shepherd. You know, when you think about your own story you have a story similar to this. You know, I think about my story. There was a time in my life when I was a sheep without a shepherd. Running and hiding amongst the rocks, the pitfalls of life, trying to figure it out, having no idea who I was, what I was supposed to be doing, why I was here, You know, why some things work out for some people and some things don't work out for some people, vulnerable to my own mistakes, ignorant to the dangers that lurked around me, hurting myself and others, either unintentionally or intentionally. Doesn't that describe all of us? There's a reason self-help books are so popular, because everybody's trying to figure it out. But then the good shepherd came looking for me. And, and I'm going to tell you something that's true of all of your stories, whether you're aware of it or not, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't pursue him. He pursued you. You did everything in your power to run away. You did everything in your power to turn your back. You did everything in your power to walk away, and still he pursued you. Some people have dramatic stories where it's like they went, from, they went to bed one way, and they woke up all of a sudden wanting a relationship with God. Because the shepherd pursues, and he pursued me, he found me, and he bound my wounds, and he fed me his truth, and he brought me into his herd of sheep, and he did this all at great cost to himself. Now, I got true confession. I'm still a sheep. That means I still wander. It means I still get lost. It means I still am easily influenced and distracted. By a crowd. And so you say, what is the difference, really, between me now and me 20 years ago? Well, I guess 25 years ago. I'm getting older every day, guys. Do you want to know what the difference is? Now I have a shepherd. That's the difference. It's not that I'm not a sheep anymore. It's that I was scattered without a shepherd, and now I have one. And he's a good shepherd who feeds me and he leads me down paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even when I walk through the valley of death, he's with me and he will lead me all the way home. He prods me along and even when I run away, he brings me back. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a story just like that whether you realize it or not. And look, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you never actually surrendered to this good shepherd, the shepherd left glory to come to the muck and the mire of life. He crossed over the Sea of Galilee to go and look for that crazy man amongst the rocks and to die and to be resurrected to pursue you. And so as we sing this last song and as you go through your days, as you go through this week, you need to ask yourself, is he calling me because his sheep hear his voice and he pursues? And so you need to reflect on that. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, is the good shepherd pursuing you? Would you stand with us, please, as we get ready? Father, we thank you that now we have a shepherd. Lord, we begin as scattered sheep. But because of your good work, because of your awesome power, because of your sacrifice, we can be pursued. You pursue us. You love us. You redeem us. You save us. And so, Father God, I pray for those who are in this room who are ready to finally follow the shepherd, who calls out to them, who desires a relationship with them. I pray that today might be the day when they pray to follow you, to receive you. I pray that you would work in hearts even as we're singing this final song. If that's you, I'm going to be up front here to the side. If you need someone to pray with either during this song or after the service, just come up. The shepherd calls, he pursues, he chases us and he's a good shepherd.